This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. A bit later in the hour, we'll check in on Puerto Rico and talk about the ABCs of nuclear warfare. But first, the people living on Vanganu, an island in the Solomon Islands of the Pacific, told of a giant rat that lived in the trees. They called it a vika. But Western scientists could not find it until now, after a 20-year search. And it turns out it's a species that had not been identified before. Joining me now to talk about that and other selected short subjects in science is Maggie Kurth Baker, senior science writer at 538. She's in NPR Studios in Minnesota. Welcome back, Maggie. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this rat. How big is this rat? It is 19 inches long and can weigh more than two pounds. It eats coconuts by gnawing through them and kind of burrowing out these little holes in the nuts with its teeth. It's huge, and it's pretty adorable in a weird way. I mean, it it even was part of children's nursery rhymes and songs on the island where it's native to. Hmm. You don't think uh, adorable and rat are nuts and, you know, they're actually moron here in New York. But let's move on. (laughs) So but the people who lived on the island, this is not news to them. They knew about this. No, not at all. I think one of the things that makes this really interesting is that it sort of highlights the importance of listening to and working with indigenous communities that know their local flora and fauna much better than these biologists who show up from someplace else to look for new species. So without collaborations like this, you know, Western scientists are likely to miss species that are going extinct from habitat loss before they can be documented in the scientific literature. So how was it finally found? Um. Well, ironically, it fell out of a tree that was being logged uh, by a logging company, which is also why they think it might end up being endangered very quickly because logging is destroying its habitat. So logging is limiting where this rat can live, but it's also the reason why science found it. Mm. So uh, now that the logging is happening and upsetting their habitat, or is the rat endangered? They, they think that that could end up being very likely. You know, once everything sort of shakes out, understanding how big this population is, it's pretty likely this is going to be an immediately discovered species going straight onto the endangered species list. Now, on the plus side, that means that documenting this in the literature is the first step to proving it needs conservation dollars. Mm. So that's at least good. Yeah, at least it's now listed someplace. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's move on to talk about the news this week about the future, our future in space. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, you know, the dream is alive, but it's getting up there in age. Uh, <laughs> the International Space Station, parts of that have been in orbit since 1998, which means that, you know, computers are getting outdated and solar panels are producing less and less energy. They're getting torn apart by space junk and damaged by radiation. Uh, a couple of years ago, Popular Science had an interesting article that was kind of clarifying that, you know, 2028 is sort of where the International Space Station is going to start to be less and less a useful piece of equipment. So people are starting to think about what comes next. And this week, NASA and the Russian space agency Roscosmos signed a new partnership to build a new International Space Station. And this time it's going to be closer to the moon. Hmm. So I guess that that means we're making plans for going from the space station to the moon. And also to Mars. Russia is apparently more interested in moon colonization, but NASA really wants to use it as a launching pad for Mars missions. Hmm. And what about the International Space Station? Is it just going to slowly devolve? Uh, I would assume that... uh, 
we'd have to take it apart somewhat. It's a lot bigger than Soyuz, not Soyuz, but than the uh, the earlier uh, yeah. space stations that we had that just kind of crashed on their own. But uh, assuming, I would assume that it would slowly just fall out of orbit and crash into the sea. Yeah, I remember when Skylab came down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the new space station, uh, when would it be in operation, you're saying? When do you think? Well, the plan, according to this agreement that they signed, is to start some construction somewhere around 2023. So that would be after NASA has the next generation space flight system up and running. Hmm, that is cool. There's news also this week about t- trying to break people out of a vegetative state, nerves, nerves stimulation somehow. Yeah, this is really interesting. So uh, the way I've been describing this to people is that it's not exactly a miracle, but it's miracle adjacent. Um, there's this Frenchman who had, you know, traumatic brain injury from a car accident 15 years ago, and he had ended up in this vegetative state. And it's a really awful situation to be in. You know, you yeah. you're not brain dead. Um, the brain has sleep-wake cycles. People can open their eyes. They can swallow food that's fed to them. They might even moan or smile, but they don't respond to touch. They aren't really aware of their surroundings. And what researchers did was they put a what's called a vagus nerve stimulator into this man's chest. And it's kind of basically a little joy buzzer. It's this disc that gives off electric shocks that's targeted at a critical part of the body's nervous system. And after a month of kind of continuously zapping on that nerve, this man regained his ability to track objects with his eyes. Mm. He started to be able to respond to some simple voice commands. He even got startled by a doctor leaning into his face really quickly. And his brain started producing more brain waves associated with consciousness. So he's not conscious now. Mm. So we're not talking cure here. Right. No, he's, he's definitely not cured. But... This is a really small step that is also a really big step for something that previously, you know, once yeah. you'd been in the state for a year, it was considered irreversible. Huh. Uh, finally, let's uh, t- take me down to something called Octopus City. Take me down to Octopus City? Yes. <laughs> Where the seaweed is green. Um, the This is a really cool story that Annalie Newitz at Ars Technica ran this week. Um, So these normally solitary octopus, you know, they don't normally live in packs. They normally live by themselves. And this is the second time that scientists have found a bunch of them living together in little houses that they've made, sometimes more than one octopus in a house, and living all together in this little community and actually having social behavior together. Wow. Because, you know, as you say, they're... Loners, and I guess they have to all learn how to get together like we in cities all have to do that, right? Right, yeah. The scientists think that this is probably actually pretty normal behavior that humans just haven't observed much before. And they think it might be tied to there being just this place where there's a lot of food. And once there's a lot of food, the octopuses all show up. And once they're all in the same place, they got to learn how to get along. Well, we have a whole new topic for cephalopod week next time we do that, so. Yes, you do. Thank you very much, Maggie. Maggie Kurth-Baker, Senior Science Writer at 538. And now it's time to play Good Thing, Bad Thing. Because every story has a flip side. Offshore wind energy installations are spreading worldwide, though the sea-based wind industry is still in its early days here in the United States. But when you build a cluster of huge structures off the shore, 
What is that doing to the ocean ecosystems? Joining me now to talk about that is Tracy Dalton. She's professor of marine affairs, University of Rhode Island. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi, Ira. So, uh, so we have now a growing population of wind installations. Do we know much about what they're doing to the offshore ecosystems? Well, we don't really know too much. Uh, there have been a couple studies, uh, mostly in European waters, but we don't know too much about what's happening out there. Ah, you're, so you're part of a research program studying the Block Island wind farm site. We are. What kind so of the block? What kind of questions do you want to answer there? So the Block Island wind farm is actually the first offshore wind farm in U.S. waters. Um, so it really provides a unique opportunity to understand what's happening out at these wind farms. Um, I'm working with some ecologists at the Division of Marine Fisheries here in Rhode Island. And we're trying to understand a few different things. We've been uh, analyzing some of the ecological data on fish and lobsters and in and around the wind turbine site. Uh, there are actually five turbines. They're about three miles offshore. So we're uh, Deepwater Wind, who is the developer, um, had uh, their consultants had collected data on fish and lobsters. And so mm. uh, my colleagues are analyzing that data to see if there have been any changes from before the wind farm was built until until now. Now, there are initial reports I've seen in the media that, that the good news is that there, there are more, there's more sea life like the artificial reefs we create with the junk we throw in there. Yeah, so we're actually, as part of our study, we're also talking to fishermen, uh, recreational and commercial fishermen who have used the area before and trying to understand if they've seen anything, mm -hmm. any changes since the wind turbines were installed uh, about a year ago. And, you know, from some of our interviews, we're seeing, the fishermen are saying that they're seeing some mussels, they're seeing some other types of fish um, around the area, mostly recreational fish that are, are common to Rhode Island waters anyways, but, um, but they have been using the area. Yeah, that, that, that report I'm talking about was actually was in the North Sea where they had that yeah. wind farm there. But, but I guess in, in the long run, we, these haven't been out that long, and we don't know what mm -hmm. the long-term effects would be for all of these places. That's right. Yeah, we don't really know. And so we've been working on these uh, studies to try, to try to understand that. And like I said, uh, there, were some, there have been some studies, like you mentioned, the one in the North Sea. Uh, that study actually looked at mussels. Uh, growing on the wind turbines and tried to understand a little bit about how they're affecting uh, all different parts of the ecosystem, uh, like phytoplankton. Mm -hmm. And the outlook for offshore wind in the U.S., we keep hearing about more sites being planned. Yes. Right now, actually, the federal government has issued 12 commercial wind energy leases, um, and there are others that are also uh, in early stages of development. So, Right now, all, the, all of those 12 sites are in, in the early stages of planning for, for new development. Mm, that gives you an opportunity to study more sites then. Yes, yes, we hope so. Yeah, that's interesting. This is, this is new technology. We need to know what's going on there. Yes, there's a lot of opportunity here, I think, for people to, to do some studies and understand what's happening with the fish and with mm. the birds and with the mammals. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Dalton. All right. Thank you very much, Ira. You're welcome. Tracy Dalton, Professor of Marine Affairs at the University of Rhode Island. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be going through the ABCs of nuclear warfare, the science behind the bomb and the fallout. We talk about 
you know, living in times with uh, North Korea and the U.S. trading accusations about nuclear weapons and things, it would be helpful to know what does what the impact does all that have on us. We'll talk about it after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. And if you're of a certain age, you may recall the practice of duck and cover. As school children, we were told to duck under our desks to seek cover as the nuclear bombs fell. The government also issued detailed instruction booklets on how to build a home fallout shelter. But fallout, of course, was a secondary concern because the immediate effects of uh, the atom bomb, the one that killed 100,000 in Hiroshima, that's, that's an immediate effect. And there was up to 80,000 dead in the Nagasaki, and roughly half of those people perished on the days the bombs dropped. Now with the threats of nuclear war being tossed back and forth between the U.S. and North Korea, I thought it might be instructive to review the basics of nuclear war, how the bombs work how they exact such a terrible toll and the lasting dangers like radiation they leave behind. Not because we're predicting imminent nuclear war, but because if anything does happen, the magnitude of the tragedy will no doubt crowd out this important scientific conversation. So how much have we learned about nuclear bomb damage and radiation exposure in the seven decades since the bombs fell on Japan? Here to school us on the ABCs of nuclear weaponry are my guests. Alan Wellerstein, Alex Wellerstein, Assistant Professor of Science and Technology Studies at the Stevens Institute of Technology. Laura Grego, Senior Scientist in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Steve Simon, Radiation Health Physicist at the National Cancer Institute. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for joining us today. Happy Good afternoon. afternoon. Thank you. Uh, uh, Alex, by now we have several generations of people growing up without ever feeling the threat of a nuclear attack. And uh, what's the lesson of history? What, what should we be carrying into the future related to nuclear warfare? I think people want to believe that it will never occur. And that's very optimistic of people. But even at the end of the Cold War and even into the present, uh, the chance of it happening is never zero. As long as the weapons are around, as long as they're out there, we should have some part of our brain assigned to the idea that this is a possibility. Let's go through some of the ABCs of a, of, of a nuclear bomb. A time, give me a time lapse. What, from the bomb dropping to the blast a days later, what happens? So a nuclear bomb is... A, you can think of it as a very complicated invention. It, it's a lot of little pieces that all come together in just the right way to produce this explosion. And that coming together takes about one-tenth of a second. It's a very fast assembly, as they would say, of this radioactive material, this fuel for the weapon, all of these other little parts. And so what you're going to get is this just intense fireball that forms. And it forms in like a tenth of a second or so. And it's hotter than anything you're going to have on the surface of the Earth. It's going to be brighter and whiter than anything you've ever seen, much worse than any kind of chemical explosion. And it's just this hot radiating ball that is then going to be expanding outward. So you're going to have three main effects coming in. One is uh, this blast wave. You're going to have this, this, this superheated air, and that's going to have the effect of uh, knocking down buildings, uh, breaking in windows, knocking over trees, knocking over people, whatever. Uh, you're also going to have this intense heat coming off of the fireball itself that might ignite some fires. It will burn skin if it's exposed to it. 
Uh, and then you're also going to have uh, uh, this radiation, which is, of course, the effect that people often focus on because it's the weirdest effect. It's the least uh, understandable. And that isn't something you're going to see or feel. But if you're too close to the bomb, you're going to get a death sentence without realizing it. If you're further out, you might be increasing your cancer risk down the line. So those are the three sort of immediate effects. Mm -hmm. And all of those are going to be happening within the first few seconds or few minutes of the bomb going on. When you say radiation, does that include the fallout? What that, is what is fallout? Fallout is uh, the radioactive cloud. So when you think of the mushroom cloud, think of that as being filled with lots of radioactive particles. If that mushroom cloud, if that fireball has gone off uh, in a way that sucks up dirt into the mm -hmm. cloud, uh, the, the radioactivity in there is going to attach itself to this dirt. And so as this cloud blows with the wind, these heavy particles that are now radioactive are going to fall out of the cloud. I get you. I get you. And so this is a delayed effect. For a small bomb, it, uh, all of the worst of that might fall out in an hour or two. For a really large bomb, it might take a couple days for it all to fall out. But that's going to be spreading contamination downwind of the explosion. Steve, how is, how is this fallout absorbed by the body? Sure. I, I'm happy to explain that. Um, the phenomena by which the radiation is absorbed by the body uh, is a sequence of steps that happen very, very quickly. Uh, we call this kind of radiation ionizing radiation. That is, it has enough energy to ionize atoms that it interacts with. And ionize means to release electrons from those atoms. So these gamma rays are a lot like X-rays, but they're much more powerful, much more energetic. They impact the cells of the body, the bones, the skin, anything that it might pass through and it has enough energy to knock electrons out of the atoms of that material. So this is the process called ionization, and it's actually those electrons that do the damage to the cells of the body. It's not the gamma rays directly, it's those electrons. So it's a sequence of steps. And so when you say absorbed by the body, it's this process that happens very, very quickly where the atoms are ionized. Would it, would it not get into our food system also? Um, the fallout can definitely enter our food system, uh, and it does that through environmental processes that we're all familiar with. We know how uh, plants grow. We know how irrigation happens. We, we know the, the processes of farming and, and, uh, and growing plants. And so that is an avenue. We call it a pathway. It's an avenue or a pathway to contamination. So it's not the radiation that contaminates the plants, but it is the fallout material. It's the debris. It's this radioactive material. Once it enters the food chain, then it can travel. Uh, it can go through this food chain in steps. It be, can, can, can be diluted or it can be concentrated, depending on the kind of food, and eventually can be consumed by man mm -hmm. or animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Laura, uh, Grego, let's say that North Korea does launch a missile. What, what happens with our missile defense system at that point? Do, do we have one? And give us a, give us a hypothetical s scenario. Yeah. Well, the United States has very fortunate geography. We have huge oceans to the east and the west, and we have friendly neighbors to the north and south. Um, and not every country is in such a peaceful neighborhood. So we don't worry about short-range missiles so much. We worry about the kinds of missiles that can carry nuclear weapons um, from that far distance. To do that, they have to go thousands of miles, and um, they're called intercontinental ballistic missiles, and that's what we worry would carry a nuclear weapon. Um, intercontinental describes how far they go, and ballistic means that after launch, they're in free fall, just subject to the forces of gravity, rather than like a cruise missile or an airplane that's under powered flight. So in the case that North Korea um, decided to launch an attack against the United States, the first thing would happen is um, these powerful rockets would ignite. And um, they do look uh, 
quite a bit like a space launch vehicle. So if you've seen a picture of that, you kind of know what it looks like. It's a really bright signal. So we have satellite-based sensors that would pick that up and see that very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that that boosting missile would take about three to five minutes to get going really quickly. And it goes up, arcs through uh, the vacuum of space. And when that's detected, and in our we also have radars in the vicinity that would cue the missile defense system, uh, the one that we have that's meant to defend the continental, or the, the 50 United States, is called the ground-based mid-course system. So uh, those radars would detect it. And fire control would um, launch one or a few interceptors um, from ground-based silos in either Alaska or California. And those look a lot like big space launch vehicles, too. Um, So uh, after the nuclear missile from the adversary um, burns out, it releases what's called a um, a, well, the nuclear weapon, which would be encased in a reentry vehicle, it's a hardened shell that's meant to protect that weapon from the heat and stress of a high-speed reentry through the atmosphere. That looks like a large cone, sort of roughly the height of a human. Um, and the uh, interceptor from California or Alaska um, also uh, gets up going to speed, and it releases what's called a kill vehicle, and that's about the size of an office file cabinet. Um, and the idea is that um, that file cabinet-sized kill vehicle would maneuver itself and try to run into the incoming nuclear weapon and destroy it mm-hmm. with the force of impact. How, um, so how successful have we been in testing this? Yeah. Well, um, it's a tough problem. It's one of the most complicated, complex systems the Pentagon has ever taken on. Um, there have been uh, 18 tests, uh, intercept tests of this system, um, and it's succeeded about half the time. And it's important to note that these tests have been really under uh, conditions that are scripted for success. They're not, they don't have decoys that can try to confuse the defense. They're not under the most stressing conditions, not the types of conditions you'd expect it to work in or you'd want it to work in real life. So um, it's been a very challenged system. Hmm. So it's it's not, it's 50-50 right now. It's 50-50 right now under the most simplified and rosy Hmm. conditions. Mm Um, and, and Alex, how does a hydrogen bomb compare to the atom bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in terms of strength and chemistry? How do they compare? So the bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the what we call atomic bombs, they work by nuclear fission, so splitting of heavy atoms, enriched uranium or plutonium. And a hydrogen bomb takes one of those bombs, so you take basically the Nagasaki bomb, and instead of using its energy to just directly destroy a city, you use it to ignite a fusion reaction, similar to how the sun works. And that amplifies its power by a lot. So just to give you a rough sort of you know, numerical approach, the Hiroshima bomb was uh, 15 kilotons, 15,000 tons mm-hmm. of TNT equivalent. That's about enough to, to destroy a big chunk of, say, midtown Manhattan. If, if one of those went off right now in midtown Manhattan, it would probably kill about 300,000 people. So that's pretty bad. Uh, the kinds of hydrogen bombs that North Korea has or claims to have are about 10 times more powerful than that, 150 kilotons. So they've multiplied it by 10. And so that raises the number of dead. If that went off in the same spot uh, uh, in Mm -hmm. midtown Manhattan, you'd get something like 900,000 dead. And you'd be destroying basically the entire southern tip of the island to some degree and parts of New Jersey and parts of Brooklyn and parts of Queens. 
Uh, you can make them as big as you want. They just become difficult to put on a missile. They become big and heavy. So the biggest one ever made was more like 100 million tons of TNT. That's a bus the size of, I mean, excuse me, that's a bomb the size of a school bus. That's not an easy thing. So uh, 100 to 500 kilotons has been the sort of sweet spot for a bomb that's relatively easy to put on a missile. Uh, so it's not as big as some of the Cold War sort of monster bombs were, but it's it's big enough to ruin your day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura, you uh, we were talking about the missile defense system. Have have people been proposing new ideas for how we might improve better than 50-50? I mean, you launch two missiles, you got 50 chance and one's going to hit. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, you certainly the idea of defense sounds great, and the practice of it is much, much more difficult. It's very difficult to get it to, to save the day. Um, so one of the things I didn't mention is um, that the adversary would release this nuclear weapon in a reentry vehicle, but it also might release at the same time um, decoys that look a lot like that weapon. And they could be as light as a Mylar balloon that you'd get at a birthday party because in the vacuum of space, everything travels, you know, travel, there's no air resistance. So a balloon would travel at the same rate um, as, as the heavy warhead. So this issue of trying to... Um, trying to intercept uh, the weapon while it's up in the vacuum of space makes it really tricky. It's prone to this um, mid-course, we call it discrimination problem, where you can't tell which is the real one and which is a fake one. You have to attack them all. So there have been some ideas to try to um, try to get that uh, the the launching missile just as it's launching. And that's tricky because, as I mentioned earlier, that launch phase is really only three to five minutes. You need to be really close. So all the options are really pretty tricky. Mm -hmm. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking about the ABCs of missile, uh, of ICBMs and and bombs, and also about radiation. Now, um, I I understand, uh, Steve, that... uh, I don't mean Steve, I mean... uh, yeah, I do mean Steve. That you were actually, you were. I'm sorry. You were actually at, a, at a, in the Marshall Islands. Uh, the one they, when they, the explosions were there. Well, I don't mean you were on the island yourself, but after the explosion. Well, I, I wasn't. Uh, I was not there when the explosions occurred. <laughs> I came. I came there much later. I would um, hope so. Yeah, much much later. Um, the Marshall Islands, you know, are a big, are, are a, a small island country, but they're spread over a tremendous area of ocean. And so various islands where the tests had taken place had been monitored in the early years for contamination. But the rest of the country had never been monitored, uh, where 90% of the people, 95% of the people live. So many years later, I did um, actually live in the Marshall Islands for over five years and monitored the entire country for residual contamination. And what did you find? Well, we found a huge gradient of contamination, as one might expect. Uh, As the other speakers described, um, you have a lot of fallout potentially very near to the the detonation site, and that becomes diluted uh, with increasing distance. So we found a very large gradient of contamination from levels uh, on small islands where you would Mm -hmm. not want to live to very low-level contamination that tapered all the way down to the background level, depending on exactly which island uh, that you were you were measuring. What's the what's the one thing that's changed about our knowledge of radiation since we started studying it seventy years ago after the bombs were dropped? Well, I think uh, th- th- we've learned many things, but uh, from my own perspective as a health physicist, I think one of the lessons that we're now more acutely aware of is the long-term cancer risk associated with low-level exposure. I mean, we've always had an appreciation that a high dose of radiation 
delivered very quickly would, would inflict tremendous damage on the human body. But we learned over time, not just from studies of uh, nuclear explosions, but from all different kind of populations where exposure took place, that low-level exposure among a large population can result in a continuing small cancer risk over many, many years. But if the mm -hmm. population is large, that adds up among that whole population. Mm -hmm. Steve, Alex, you're shaking your head in agreement with what, what he's saying. It, it's one of these things that people have a very hard time conceptualizing, which is that it's not like you get exposed and you're going to get cancer. But if you get True. exposed and your cancer goes up by 1%, for any individual person, that's not much. But if you mm -hmm. have 100 million people and you have 1% more cancers, that adds up to a lot more people. And so I was shaking my head because this is a very good explanation of the trickiness of, of talking about radiation and risk is that people want to sort of see it as a you got it or you don't and it's really more like you're adding on you're adding you know dice to your life your your can your fatal cancer risk in the united states is is around 20% just as mm -hmm. a baseline so add a couple percentage to that and then imagine that across a big number and that adds up yeah we're going to take a break and uh, continue our discussion about uh, uh, nuclear weapons we have some listeners and callers and uh, tweeting us so We'll see if we can get to some of those tweets, some of the interesting questions. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking this hour about the science of nuclear warfare, from bomb chemistry to radiation fallout to, to missile defense, with my guests Alex Wallerstein, Wallerstein Laura Grego, and Steve Simon. Uh, a lot of people are on the phone. Let's see if we can get to uh, Oh, here's a question that a lot of people have been asking. I'm going to go to Peter in Berkeley, California for it. Hi, Peter. Hi, Ira. Thank you so much for this discussion. It's critical. And uh, I think that more people need to know about the work of Alan Robach, the, clientist, uh, the climatologist at Rutgers and his colleagues, who've been warning for years and years that the real danger is nuclear winter, uh, first, first popularized by uh, Carl Sagan and his colleagues. Um, but Robach is saying that even in the neighborhood of 50 bombs going off, which could easily happen, say, between India and Pakistan, for example. All right. All right. I, would, let, me, let me get the question in because we're running out of time. Oh, let me ask, let me ask uh, Alex, what about nuclear winter? How feasible is that? Yeah, it's a really interesting topic, and it's one that's generated a lot of scientific and political controversy over the years. Just to put it basically, the idea is in a full nuclear exchange where your weapons are not, say, going off in a desert or something, they're going off on cities or prairies or what have you, um, a lot of fires are going to be started. And those fires are going to put a lot of smoke, just regular old soot, into the atmosphere. And if you put enough smoke into the atmosphere, you'll reflect a lot of sunlight. And mm -hmm. if you reflect too much sunlight, you won't have any sun, and the temperatures will dip, and your crops will all fail, and you'll starve to death. And so this is the nuclear winter hypothesis. Uh, Carl Sagan famously put it out there in 1983. Uh, Alan Robach has been working on it for years. Uh, in, uh, people who have continued this work, uh, more and more fine-grained simulations. Well, what makes it um, difficult and controversial is that, uh, fortunately, we don't have anything like this ever occurring. It's not an mm -hmm. experiment we can run. And so there's a lot of parameters. How much smoke will be put into the atmosphere? How many fires will be started? Will that smoke dissipate or will it reflect or will it not? And so depending on the parameters you choose, you either come up with the answer of, uh, which something like the Robach answer, which is it's actually pretty easy to imagine this occurring, at least on some level, maybe not the full yeah. ice age. 
uh, but enough to affect crop failures. Or you get some people who say, I don't think we have enough nuclear weapons to possibly do it. Uh, if you, It's one of these areas that I find interesting because how do you react to that uncertainty? Do you yeah. assume the worst case or the yeah. best case? What's the appropriate one? Uh, uh, it, it, it appears the military assumes the best case, and that's interesting to think about why that might be. Uh, one, I, we're running out of time. There's so many questions. I want to ask... Uh, 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 Steve Simon, you're a radiation specialist, the NCI. Uh, what factors would determine how long before you could come out of a fallout shelter if you happen to be in one and it's keeping the radiation out? We're all assuming that's all happening. Well, that's a good question, Ira. Let's, let's talk about the reality of a fallout shelter, and maybe we should use the phrase uh, sheltering in place, because the, old, the idea of a fallout shelter that we had when we were kids, not many of those exist any longer. So more likely... People will be advised to stay in their homes, in their apartment buildings, in in, in buildings of substantial structure that have that have withstood the blast and are still have you know all their in, uh, integrity mm-hmm. to them. So, how long do they need to stay in there? Well, it's not a simple answer. It depends to a degree on the intensity of the contamination at that place, mm-hmm. right? That would make sense. It would also depend on what kinds of activities and how long a time you are going to spend outside. So, the length of time that you would be need to spend inside would depend on your occupation, your age. In other words, emergency workers, medical workers, uh, police firemen, they could possibly, due to the urgency for them to perform their duties, could leave earlier, earlier, that is, than families and children. So you're saying, though, that but don't depend on a fallout shelter, or so as you, a different word, to actually shield you from all the radiation. Uh, what exactly is your question? Well, I'm saying even though you're in a fallout shelter, don't expect it to shield you from all the radiation. It's not, well, it's not hermetically sealed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially a home when you're sheltering in place. It's not, it's not an underground bunker. Uh, very few of us would have that luxury. So, uh, but you will be afforded the protection of the walls. The thickness of the walls will attenuate the radiation, whether they will prevent uh, contamination from creeping in through air ducts and those kinds of systems would all depend on the design of your home and, and how you would fortify that after mm-hmm. the emergency. So there's a lot of variables yeah. there. And we could talk forever about this because we did. We, could. we used to talk about it forever in the 50s. Uh, I want to thank you all for taking time to be with us today. Uh, Steve Simon, radiation health physicist at the NCI. Laura Grego, a senior scientist uh, in Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Alex Wellerstein, assistant professor of science and technology studies at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. Thank you for taking time to be with us all today. You thank bet. You. Thank you. And now a look at a a natural disaster, a look at Puerto Rico, where 3.4 million American citizens are still reeling from the damage dealt by Hurricane Maria last week. The stories coming out of the island territory speak to a brewing humanitarian crisis. You have a power cut, communications are down, communities are without food or water. FEMA is on the ground in Puerto Rico and neighboring U.S. Virgin Islands, and the U.S. military has sent ships now, including a hospital ship, eight days after the... uh, Hurricane first hit. But when assessing the response, where do we begin to prioritize which resources go where? Why will it take months to bring the power back? And how do we get medical aid to people in far-flung rural communities? Here to talk about the science of disaster response and everything we've learned from catastrophes like Hurricane Katrina and the 2010 earthquake in Haiti and others 
is uh, my guest. Jennifer Santos Hernandez is a sociologist and research professor specializing in disaster response, University of Puerto Rico. She joins us from near San Juan. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Uh, thank you for, for being with us. Jose Hugo Inveras is a professor of uh, civil and environmental engineering at Rensselaer Polytech Institute in Troy, New York. Welcome to Science Friday. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dr. Veras. Um, let's talk about, uh, at the beginning, um, Jose, Jennifer, you, when you look at a disaster affecting an entire island of three and a half million people, how do you begin to assess what needs to be done first? Uh, well, uh, should I start? Yes, go uh, ahead. Well, basically, the, the first thing is to, in, in the case of a catastrophic event like this one, a catastrophic event is one that basically eliminates the, the local capacity to respond. In essence, you need to get an idea about the amount of resources that need to be transported. And to that effect, we have statistics related to the amount of goods that are transported, that must be transported in disasters on um to, to food, water, cooking utensils, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have this number, let's say typically five kilograms per person per day for basically food and water, and basically multiply by and then do use models to quantify how many uh, how many points of distribution and who is going to deliver what and produce estimate of resources. Mm -hmm. That's the first step. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, you're in Puerto Rico. Uh, how is the relief effort unfolding from within the country? Do you see it changing today, day by day, hour by hour? It's certainly changing day by day. This morning, the governor uh, reduced the curfew. Now uh, it's from 5 a.m. from 9 p to 9 p.m. that citizens can be outside. And they also eliminate uh, the ban on alcohol sales. Um, so it's slowly recovering. Yesterday there was also... Uh, another order emitted uh, by the consumer uh, sort of agency uh, that pretty much they prohibit limiting the amount of fuel that citizens could purchase when they go to the station. So those are, you know, small decisions or small changes in the, the logistics that should alleviate uh, some of the, of, of the big lines that we're seeing uh, down here. I ask both Jennifer and Jose. We had plenty of warning that this hurricane was on the way. I mean, people knew how terrible it was. Uh, why weren't we more ready to respond immediately to that? Well, you know, I think that one of the, uh, you have to put the the event in context. You know, one thing is the citizens' uh, preparedness, and I think that uh, to a great extent they did uh, pretty well. You know, they they just had Irma two weeks ago. So when you when 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 I was in in the field looking at the preparedness efforts that citizens were taking uh, before the hurricane, you could see that they were really taking the event seriously. You're talking about a Cat Five, uh, Cat Four, almost Cat Five hurricane uh, too, and you had to put it in, in 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 the context of the situation of the island. You're dealing with with an island that has been in a fiscal uh, uh, in a very dire fiscal situation for over a decade. So all these public corporations that provide basic services are bankrupt. Uh, so a lot of the, of the maintenance, a lot of the mitigation that could have been taken care uh, uh, prior to the event was not uh, in place. So one thing is the, is, the, is the citizens and how well they prepare. The other thing is, you know, everyone was told to, that they needed to be prepared for 72 hours. We're talking now about nine days. 
So people are starting to run out and the things that they had at home for the event, but that's one thing. The other is more the organizational level and the, and the government bureaucracy that is not being capable uh, to really meet uh, the demands uh, that, that the event has presented. Professor Holguin-Veras, do you agree with that? I mean, it, I, I tend to agree with Jennifer in the sense that uh, people in the Caribbean, I originally from the Dominican Republic, they know hurricanes, they know how to prepare. But I believe the response from the government has been uh, lacking. We also need to take into account that this is the third in a sequence of hurricanes. And FEMA, by the end of Harvey, uh, a week after Harvey, was already exhausting the, the, the emergency funds they have. I believe that uh, I am very concerned about the situation in, in Puerto Rico. Just to give you a sense, uh, during the Katrina response, the, uh, the federal government has to deploy about 30,000 national, national guards in order to help with the logistics. And basically here I fear that something like this uh, it will be needed I mean, because of the amount of resources that must be transported from the port of San Juan to to the different uh, locations in need, and that requires a coordinated response very fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were something like 5,000 troops in Puerto Rico, or uh, weren't there something like 20,000 in the in the last dire Katrina situation we had? They were they were 30,000. 30,000. You see, basically involved. Well, the whole thing in Louisiana and, and Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Just to give you some numbers. If we have, you think about the following. If you think about the that half the population in Puerto Rico needs food and water at some point, because as Jennifer indicated, everybody's stuck, but nobody's stuck for for something like this. If you have, yeah, but at the same the, at the same time, you know, stores are opening and and the and and there's enough uh, 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 products in the in the port, so it's not an issue of of getting stuff to the court and people running no, out I, of food is I, complicated. I, 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 I understand that, and this is what I want to explain. Because basically, mm-hmm. it, this, we, have, we have found that in previous disasters. In, in essence, mm-hmm. the, the cargo arrived to the port. The problem is the local distribution capacity. Basically, if 50% of the, of the population of Puerto Rico need five kilograms of food and water per day, which is typical, that will require about a number of tons that would require about uh, 8,500 tons per day. And that requires to transport in Puerto Rico almost 1,400 trucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about this. And this is basically why the cargo is piling up at the port, because the local distribution capacity have not be, have, have not been reestablished. And that's why, basically, uh, this, this late in the crisis, basically, it might be that the National Guard might be the only one that could do it. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking about the, the crisis uh, in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, one last uh, quick thing before we go. The Astronomical Observatory in Arecibo was also weathered Hurricane Maria last week. Nicholas White is Senior Vice President for Science at the University Space Research Association, and he joins us by phone. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. How nice well how well has the the radio telescope and the the grounds weathered? Uh, very well, actually. We were very concerned at the beginning uh, that there may have been some serious damage, uh, obviously with such strong winds. But as uh, we've uh, been able to get communications established to the site, and now the staff are back there, 
it, it turns out that uh, there is some damage. Uh, one of the transmitter antennas was damaged, uh, but most of the damage, I think, is, is fairly straightforward to repair. And they've even uh, started uh, some trial observations today uh, to, to look at some pulsars to see if, if they're uh, observable. And, and so far, it looks good that they actually detected a pulsar. So, so we're kind of optimistic that, uh, that we can get the observatory back online pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. Uh, we're also talking uh, with uh, Jennifer Santos Hernandez and Luis Huiguin Veras, um, uh, who are still with us. Um, Lo- Jose, what do you think the long-term lesson from all of this is? That basically that you need to develop uh, policies to articulate local communities that are the ones that have the, the capacity to distribute locally with the external aid. What is happening in Puerto Rico is what happened in Haiti. The cargo arrives, the supplies arrive at the port, and they couldn't be delivered. Because in essence, uh, we need to have procedures to link up the local communities with the external response. And this, this, this is what's lacking now. Uh, and Jennifer, what, what's your last word on this? Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's also an issue of the information flow. You know, the co- telecommunications here have been down since the hurricane, and they're very slowly... Uh, recovering, so that has been a major issue. There's also been a lot of misinformation, and you know, this is a colonial state, and the relationship with the military has not always been good. So, for example, the moment that they mentioned that there was a curfew, a lot of the truck drivers were concerned that they couldn't be out uh, during the curfew. So, the governor mm-hmm. had to make explicit that they were exempt uh, from the curfew. Uh, so, it's a very, uh, you know, complicated situation. Uh, something to look at. Uh, from a from a research perspective, uh, but 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 certainly a source mm-hmm. of major concern because behind all of this are are, are the lives of, of people. Uh, Jennifer Santos Hernandez, uh, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Also, Ho- uh, Jose Holguin Veras, professor of civil engineering at uh, Rensselaer, thank you for for being with us today. One last thing before we go, uh, you tell us you listen to Science Friday because you can trust the information we give you whether we're talking about climate change, space, genetics, or changes to science policy, we bring you the real facts and really not fake news. And you may not know that it costs us tens of thousands of dollars each week to do this. Fees from stations, they account for less than 30% of our budget, so we need help from you. Even a small gift can make a big impact, and your donations uh, will give you the same good feeling that you get when you listen. So at a time when science is under attack, help push back. ScienceFriday.com slash give. Go to ScienceFriday.com slash give. Speak loudly with your donation. ScienceFriday.com slash give. Charles Burke was our director. Senior producer Christopher Talata produces our Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, Katie Haller. Our radio intern is Sushmita Padok. Rich Camera technical director Sarah Fisherman and Jack Horowitz, our engineers. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato in New York.